Blog Talk Radio. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and the Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called Found God's Peace. It's all about helping you defeat anxiety and know true and lasting contentment. Request your free booklet by writing to peace at gty.org. That's P-E-A-C-E at G-T-Y dot org. Offer good in North America and Europe through June of 2018. And now, unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time. Here's grace to you Bible teacher, John MacArthur. We're looking at Galatians 5 and verses 16 to 25. Let me read that passage to you again. 
Paul is writing to believers, obviously, to those in Galatia and to all believers and to us. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, or drugs, enmities, or hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. The call to walk by the Spirit in verse 16 is repeated at the end. In verse 25, and what is in between explains to us the importance and urgency of obeying the command to walk by the Spirit. As I was thinking about the the message this morning and meditating on what I might say, for some reason, my mind went back to a trip a number of years ago to India. One of the most uh, amazing trips of my life to see life in that massive country which has been so strongly influenced by Hinduism. Millions of people I found uh, when I was there with uh, our family were living in the street. And I mean actually living in the street by the millions. They were living in the gutters, essentially. And down the gutters was flowing on a daily basis open sewage. You can't reproduce in any picture of India the smell. It is probably the most memorable part of a trip to that land. The stench is enough to create a gagging reflex. It was the worst desperate human condition of filth and corruption in the streets that I had ever experienced, unforgettable. Even to this day, the slums of India, which we also saw, are buried in filth and garbage. As I was thinking about that, I I honestly began to see our own culture that way, our own society that way, not in a physical sense, not in a material sense, but in a moral sense, in a spiritual sense. Life in our society is the worst that I have ever seen. It is morally like the flowing sewage of India. Sewage of open sin runs freely through the streets of our society, through every level of discourse and life. We're up to our knees in the filth of sin and corruption. Moral sewage, once contained underground, now has broken out and runs openly everywhere. I can remember a time in my life when um, moral sewage was 
piped underground. It was less likely to be seen, the odor less likely to be experienced. Sinners had a certain kind of um, humility about their transgressions. But that's all gone, and the moral sewage once contained underground in a kind of a moral cover, superficial at best, but still a moral cover, has now broken out everywhere. Proud sinners revel in their transgressions. They revel in their depravity. In fact, it may be the most defining thing about them to celebrate their wretchedness. The lust of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, identified in our passage in verses 19 to 21, are everywhere immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities or hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. All of this is what the flesh produces. And admittedly, at certain times and places in history, there's a kind of, uh, there's a kind of civility. There, there's a kind of um, expectation of uh, quality of life that pushes those things down a little bit underground. That has long since gone away. And now the open sewage of the sins of our culture runs in the streets. We see it. We experience it. We can't avoid it. And it's not just that our society is defined by that. There's a compounding reality. And that is explained in Romans chapter 1. Because in Romans chapter 1, we read about the judgment of God. And it's the judgment of God on nations, on people that reject Him. Those who know God but don't glorify Him as God those who turn their back on the knowledge of God will experience the judgment of God, the wrath of God. It says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And what does that look like? What does it look like when God unleashes that judgment? Well, verse 24 uses um, legal language. It says God gave them over. That's the legal term to hand over a guilty criminal to his sentence. That's literally a legal expression. God, in an act of judgment, legally turns over a culture to, it says in verse 24, the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. When God judges a nation that rejects the knowledge of him, that knows God and glorifies Him not as God, as is true in our Western culture. When God unleashes judgment, the first thing that will happen is the lusts of the heart to impurity will begin to dominate. And then the bodies will follow and be dishonored. You will have a sexual revolution. The second thing that happens in verse 26, God gave them over again the legal term, God turns the guilty over as an act of sentencing them, turns them over to the punishment, gave them over to degrading passion, not just passion, but degrading passion, and it's described, women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also, the men abandon the natural function of the woman 
and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. This is homosexuality. After the sexual revolution comes the homosexual revolution. Women with women in an unnatural way, men with men, their desire burning toward one another, committing indecent acts. But the third expression of this text with regard to the judgment of God is that God gave them over to a depraved mind. And we've talked about that. The, the third step, not only a sexual revolution, a homosexual revolution, but a depraved mind, that means the mind doesn't function. That's when a kind of insanity prevails, which is demonstrated clearly in the fact that now we're not allowed to say a man is a man and a woman is a woman. That is insanity. That is a depraved mind. And out of that, and as a result of all of this, the text of Romans 1 says God gave them over to a depraved mind or a reprobate mind, a non-functioning mind, to do the things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So you can add to the corruption of the society the judgment of God, which then escalates the corruption. God turns us over to a sexual revolution, a homosexual revolution, and then to a non-functioning mind. And in, in that situation, all kinds of filth breaks loose in society. And we know, because of our Christian heritage, we know what the Bible says the result of it is going to be. And in spite of what we know, we applaud the people who behave in these ways. We are a corrupt society. We are doubly corrupt by God pulling back and letting us plunge deeper into that corruption. Sensible people, and I know that would include you, sensible people fear for the future of their children. They fear for the future of their grandchildren. The desires of the flesh now have a kind of power never before seen because of the development of electronic media that spreads evil like it's never been possible to spread it across the globe. And inherent in that evil is destruction, self-destruction and the destruction of others. There has never been in my lifetime a culture so bent on destruction, destroying themselves and along the way destroying everybody around them who doesn't give them the due they think they deserve. Living in a destructive society, a self-destructive and mutually destructive society is a tough place to survive. So we can ask the question, how do we as Christians, how do we as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, how do we as slaves of our Lord and Master, how do we as saints, holy ones, as we saw earlier in our study here, how do we escape the pollution? Can we escape the pollution? We are actually knee-deep 
in corruption? Can we escape? Can we live above the moral sewage that's all around us? And, of course, the answer is yes. This isn't the first society that went through this kind of cycle, this kind of judgment. But the question then follows, if we can, how can we? How is it possible for us to live holy lives in an unholy world? How can we be light shining in the darkness? How can we escape the corruption that is in the world, to borrow biblical language? Religion comes along, and religion recognizes some of this, and religion says, be a better person. Be a better person. Be a better person, and you'll make a better world. As you heard from the guy who gave the speech at the royal wedding, fill the world with love. That's the answer to everything. Go love everybody. It's a nice sentiment. It's just impossible. That's a human work that can't rise above a fallen human heart that by nature is filled with hate and selfishness and pride. It's a nice sentiment. It's just not possible. But religion says... Live a better life. Be a better person, and God will accept you. This religion or any other religion depends on a certain degree of human achievement, a certain degree of religious activity, and a certain degree of uh, self-styled morality to, to sort of um, escape the morass of evil that engulfs us. The problem is false religion is false religion. And it can't change the hearts of any of its people, either its leaders or its followers. And so they're even finding it impossible to be the person that they think they need to be to please God. Jesus unmasked that with the Pharisees, didn't he? They thought they were white and pure before God. But Jesus said, you're whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you're, you're painted white. On the inside, you're wretched with dead men's bones. But religion, false religion, always offers the simple answer, be better people. This is, of course, what defined New Testament Judaism. The Jews believed they needed to be better people. And that meant adhering to the law of God. Now, they, they couldn't be better people on the inside on their own so they were sort of left with trying to please God based on the outside. Those things that were ceremonial duties like circumcision and adherence to certain rituals and ceremonies in Judaism, those are the things they could do on the outside. And by doing those things, they believed that they were making themselves better people and God would accept them. The problem is the hearts aren't changed by any form of religious legalism, including Judaism. So in their hearts was nothing but the flesh, and out of their flesh came the same things, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, etc., etc., etc. And where all of that resided, there were folks who had no part in the kingdom of God. But these Jews were clinging to the law with a tenacity that 
didn't let them let go. Some of these Jews had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but they still couldn't let go of the law. They couldn't accept that salvation was by faith alone. They believed that it was by faith in Jesus plus keeping the ordinances, plus keeping the ceremonies, keeping the rituals, including circumcision and the other things prescribed in the Old Testament law of Moses. These false teachers dogged the steps of the gospel preachers in the New Testament, particularly the Apostle Paul. Paul went to a Gentile area like Galatia, preached the gospel to Gentiles and, of course, Jews as well. And he told them salvation, forgiveness of sin, eternal life, a place in the kingdom is by faith alone, not by works. They believed they were forgiven, they were saved, they were given new life, they were born again, they were justified, they were in the process of being sanctified, they were headed for eternal glory. But along came these Jewish false teachers called Judaizers because they, they wanted to declare that no one could go from paganism to Christianity. You had to go from paganism to Judaism to Christianity. You couldn't go from worshiping a, a rock or worshiping Caesar to worshiping God in Christ. You couldn't go that way. You had to go through Judaism. They were called Judaizers because they were saying the only salvation comes through going the way of the law. And what they meant by that is you must obey the law, specifically circumcision, which was the symbol of adherence to external legal prescriptions and the other externals. They got into the Gentile churches. They confused these Gentile churches. They said salvation by faith is not salvation at all. It's faith plus keeping the law. Paul has to attack that. He has to address that. They also said, look, if you say you're a Christian, all the more reason you need to keep the law. The law is necessary not only for salvation, but it's necessary for sanctification. So they were pushing these Gentiles into an external form of Judaism as necessary for their salvation and their sanctification. Paul writes this letter to the Galatians to undo that. And in the opening four chapters, he talks about salvation being by faith alone. And he says in chapter 1 that if you add works to it, chapter 1, verse 6, you have basically invented a different gospel, which is not really another, verse 7, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. He then pronounces judgment on them, double judgment. If we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed, as we have said before. So I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Paul goes on to say salvation is by faith and faith alone. Anybody who preaches anything other than that is damned. So he uses the first four chapters basically to answer the idea of works added to faith in salvation. And then in chapter 5, he addresses the issue of the role of works, deeds of the flesh, in regard to sanctification. He asked the question back in chapter 3, verse 3, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
The idea, again, the Judaizers were saying, look, you've got to do all these external things in order not only to be saved, but to be sanctified as well. You have to keep the external laws of Moses. But Paul's message was that you've been set free from all of that. Chapter 5, verse 1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back to the law. Don't go back. You are free. You are free in Christ. Verse 13 of chapter 5. You were called to freedom, brothers. You were called to freedom. Now, the Jews had a very difficult time with this. And the Judaizers are described this way in Galatians 2.4. False brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our freedom, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. Freedom was the word the Judaizers couldn't tolerate. But in Christ, you are free from the external rites and rituals of the Mosaic law. In Christ you are free also from an accusing conscience, free from the tyranny of a legal system, free from condemnation, free from pressure and frustration in trying to do the impossible. This is true freedom. It's freedom to do what is right. Paul makes that clear in chapter 5, verse 13. You were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. It's not freedom to do what is wrong. It is freedom to do what is right through love to serve one another. So here's the issue. These Jewish teachers came holding tenaciously to Old Testament ritual regulations, particularly circumcision, which is mentioned four times in chapter 5 by the time you get to verse 11. They were so deeply concerned with the need to obey the law, they themselves had not escaped the bondage of the law. They were enslaved by it. They couldn't tolerate a message of freedom. They had spent their whole life trying to earn their way with God by keeping the law and now freedom in Christ was a stumbling block to them. They believed that the law was the divine means to restrain sin, to produce righteousness, to honor God, and to escape judgment. To them, Paul was a heretic. To them, he was a lawless libertine. And so Paul answers all these accusations. And as I said in the first four chapters, he speaks to the issue of salvation by faith alone apart from works of the law. And in chapter 5, he addresses the issue of sanctification apart from the law. Verse 5 sums up his view. We, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. As we pursue righteousness, we do it through the Spirit by faith, not by the law. So salvation is by faith alone, and sanctification is by faith alone, not some external 
rules, and rituals. Now, as we come to our passage, that gets us right there. The Jews are going to say, how are you then going to do what honors God? How are you then going to please God? How are you going to escape judgment if you don't adhere to the law? Answer, verse 16, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Verse 18, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. This is Paul's answer. This is how you live your life as a Christian. This is the path of sanctification. Walk by the Spirit. We have looked at this now. We saw that as a command. Walk by the Spirit. It's a command in verse 16. It's a command in verse 25. We saw the fact that there is a conflict. It's not easy because our remaining human flesh fights against the Holy Spirit. The Spirit fights against the flesh to keep us from doing what our flesh wants. There is a stark contrast, however, between what the flesh wants and does and what the Spirit wants and does. And we're looking at that in verses 19 to 23. The flesh can only produce what's listed here. This is what human effort does. This is what human effort does. Romans 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that does good. There's none that can escape the corruption in the world. They're not all as bad as they could be. They're not all as bad as the worst of them. But this is where they live because this is what the flesh produces. That's why the world is the way it is. That's why society is the way it is. And then you double up on that by God judging us and pulling back restraint. And you understand that what we're living in is a world that is acting exactly like fallen sinners should act without restraint. But on the other hand, we as believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And verse 22 and 23 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, actually, and self-control. This is very different than the world. Very different. This is how the church is to display gospel power in the world. We're to be the people who show the stark contrast. While all the world is living out the deeds of the flesh because that's all they're capable of, we're to be the living, shining, bright lights of the glorious reality that God the Spirit is in us manifesting divine attributes through us. This is challenging for us. It's very challenging. First of all, it's challenging because as the world looks at Christianity, it can't tell a true Christian from a fake one. It can't tell a true institution of Christianity from a fake one. It's horribly confusing for the world looking at so-called Christians because they see everything. And you would never get a collection of non-believers together and say, would you please describe Christians as you see them in the world, and they would give you this list of nine virtues. I don't think so. They would pull out all the ugly stuff, 
all the stuff that's in the other list that's characteristic of so-called Christians to justify their unbelief. So it's very challenging because the church, the true church, has to be found and it's not immediately visible because there are so many false Christians mucking up the system. I was thinking the other day, and I mentioned this to someone, one of the most damaging things that's going on in Christianity today is surveys. Whether it's a Pew survey or Barna survey or any other survey. You know, you read those surveys and you read and um, 51% of Christians don't think Jesus is the only way. Um, 70% of Christians don't believe in hell. 60-some percent or whatever the number is uh, don't believe that, that the Bible is without error, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you might say, well, isn't that kind of helpful uh, to find out that there are people who uh, call themselves Christians who don't believe that? My answer is absolutely not. That's not helpful. In the first place, I don't know who they're talking to. I don't know what the questions are, but I do know what the effect is. Here's the effect. They are creating a new kind of Christianity that tolerates everything. Oh, Half, half Christians don't believe Jesus is the only way. I can be a Christian. If 45% of the Christians believe a homosexual lifestyle is fine and same-sex marriage is fine, then I can be a Christian. If uh, Christians don't believe the Bible is without error, I can be a Christian. If most Christians don't believe there's a, an eternal lake of fire, I can be a Christian. So the default position, the, the stupid outcome of their efforts is to create a kind of Christianity that is fake. They need to stop doing that. Because now we have a Christianity into which anybody can fit. So the challenge is how do you even find the real Christians? But I would say to you, when you do find them, they better look like this. When you do find them, they better look like this. They ought to be known by the manifestation of these fruits. You can't see attitudes other than in words and deeds. But those ought to be the words and deeds that Christians manifest. Now, notice the singular. It's one fruit, but it has many qualities. You could say it's one bouquet with many beautiful colors or one flower with many petals. This is the fruit. If you're walking in the Spirit... If you're walking faithfully in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, which means you're walking under His power in obedience to the Word of God, this is what your life is like. And this isn't a list that you can choose from. This is, this is the full picture. When you're walking in the Spirit, this is the picture. It's not that this week you work on one and next week you'll try out another. They're all there when the Spirit is filling you and you're walking in the Spirit. These spiritual excellencies mark true Christians. The bouquet of precious virtues are the distinguishing characteristics of those who have been regenerated, reborn, and in whom the Holy Spirit lives. We looked at these and we considered, first of all, their nature. The simple way to express their nature is they're all attributes of God. They're all characteristic of God. They all have a heavenly quality. 
They're all godlike virtues. Now, you might argue that uh, perhaps meekness or humility is not a godlike virtue, but, but the word that is used for meekness here has the idea of gentleness that's heavily weighted in that, and certainly gentleness is characteristic of God. Shows up in His mercy and His grace toward us. So the first thing we saw is these things are all characteristics of God. They're all God attributes. Now that the Holy Spirit of God lives in us, uh, the Spirit of God manifests then these attributes through us. Now, I would agree that these are familiar words in the world. If you go into the Hallmark store, you're going to find love, joy, peace, and kindness, and goodness, and all of that. But those are very, very superficial facsimiles of the real virtue. There is a kind of love that people in the world have. There is a kind of joy and a kind of peace and a kind of patience and so forth. But they are sort of meager, uh, weak uh, imitations of the real thing. The kind of love, joy, peace, etc. that we have is, is inexplicable. It's the, it's the virtue that passes understanding. And our lives, as we walk in the Spirit, that is obeying the Word of God, our lives will show these things. And we've looked at love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Now let me wrap up with just the last three. Three final graces. Like the others, they are winsome, lovely virtues. The first one for this morning is the last one in verse 22, faithfulness. It's the Greek word for faith or faithfulness, and here it means faithfulness. If you're walking in the Spirit, you're going to manifest faithfulness. What does that mean? Loyalty or fidelity to your word, truthfulness, trustworthiness, honesty. That's what we're talking about. Romans 3.3 speaks of the faithfulness of God. Lamentations 3.22 and 23, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. God is faithful. 1 Corinthians 1.9, 1 Corinthians 10.13, God is faithful. Psalm 36.5, the, faith, the faithfulness of God reaches to the clouds Psalm 89:33 Nevertheless my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him nor allow my faithfulness to fail that is truthfulness trustworthiness honesty integrity it's translated proof in Acts 17:31 God made a promise and he offered proof in that he raised Jesus from the dead this is essential as a virtue in a spirit-filled life that you Speak the truth, that you are true to your word, true to your promise. This is basic integrity. The Spirit-filled believer speaks the truth, lives the truth, can be trusted, is honest, steadfast, unwavering in loyalty to that which is true and right and good. What about your words? What about your promises? What about your confessions and testimonies? Are they true? Are you someone marked by the truth? If you're walking in the Spirit, you are. It is an attribute of God. 
God who is truth and God who cannot lie. God who is the truth. And the example, the second point we made in each of these is Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 3 says the Lord is faithful. In Revelation 1.5, and 19.11, the Lord Jesus Christ is presented as the faithful and true one. The faithful and true one. It is an attribute of God who is true and cannot lie. It is manifest in Christ who is the faithful and true one. It is commanded of us. 1 Corinthians 4.2 is required of stewards that a man be found faithful. All of us are stewards of the truth of God, stewards of the gospel, and faithfulness is required of us. It is required of a man of God, 1 Timothy 6, that he be faithful, that he be faithful. We speak truth. We live truth. We uphold truth, says in Titus 2.10 showing all good faithfulness so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. You want people to adorn the doctrine of God? You want people to think well of God? Be faithful to truth, His truth, the truth which He has declared and revealed in Scripture and the truth that comes out of your own mouth. Speak the truth. Live the truth Tell the truth. Listen to 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee youthful lusts, pursue righteousness, faithfulness, love, and peace with all those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. Again, love and peace are there along with faithfulness. We're commanded to be faithful. That means loyal to the truth, the truth of God, the truth of those very things that we declare in our own lives. Where does the power come for this? It's the Holy Spirit. It says about Stephen in Acts 6-5 that he was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And it's really full of faithfulness and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the source of faithfulness. Faithfulness and the Holy Spirit go together. That's why faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit. In your flesh, you're not going to be faithful. In your flesh, you're not going to be trustworthy. You're not going to be loyal. You're not going to be truthful. You're not going to have a deep honesty, a pervasive honesty. But in the power of the Spirit, He produces that in you and through you, and it's manifest. The second one I want you to notice begins verse 23. It's translated in the NAS as gentleness. It's actually better translated meekness. Meekness, it's proutes is the Greek word. It's humility with a kind of a gentle edge. Um, And sometimes is elsewhere also translated gentleness, sometimes meekness. But here is the virtue. The virtue is humility. It appears with lowliness and um, being humble as well as being gentle. You see this same word in verse 1 of chapter 6 when it says, uh, if anyone's caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of proutes, humility or gentleness. It's, it's a humility that is gentle, and humility by its nature is gentle. Humility doesn't ride over people. It doesn't run roughshod over people, even people who are struggling with sin. It, it treats them with a kind, of, a kind of meek, gentle character. So we are to be marked with humility. Obviously, we know what humility is, but 
from a biblical standpoint, I'm not talking psychologically about it. This is how it shows up in the Bible. This word is used to refer to being submissive to the will of God. Being submissive to the will of God. That's humility. Humble yourselves and God will lift you up. It also is used, biblically speaking, to refer to submission to the Word of God, not just the will of God, like the meek in Matthew 5.5, 5, but the Word of God. In James chapter 1, verse 21, it says, putting aside all filthiness, all that remains of wickedness, in humility, proutes, receive the Word implanted. Receive the Word. So this is a humility that allows us to submit to the will of God and the Word of God. But it even goes beyond that to the people around us because in Titus 3.2, it is translated this way, showing consideration to all men. And it's translated consideration. And that's where its gentleness aspect comes out. The example is Christ who, who said, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. Second Corinthians 10.1 speaks of the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He is the model. He is the model of one who humbled himself. He said in Matthew 11, I am meek and lowly in heart. Ephesians 4, that very familiar, wonderful text of Scripture that talks about walking worthy, says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness. It pulls those two together as well as other virtues. So God is the one who defines this. It is an attribute of His nature as He, as God, humbled Himself to become man. Christ is the example of that. Philippians 2, he took on the form of a slave, went all the way to the cross. That was his humbling. It's commanded of us to be humble. 1 Peter chapter 3, and uh, this is a, an important verse, verse 15. Sanctify Christ, set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness, the same word, and reverence. We even proclaim the gospel with a meekness and a gentleness. This is the work of the blessed Holy Spirit in us. God is the source. God is the definer of it. Christ is the model. We're commanded to be meek and gentle, and the Holy Spirit empowers us, producing that in us as part of His fruit. One last one, self-control. Self-control. We could talk a lot about that, obviously. Enkratea, very rare in the New Testament. It means the power to keep your sin in check. The power to keep your sin in check. The power to restrain your sin in thought in word, indeed. God has perfect self-control. He's the definition of self-control. Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord, I change not. He never sins. He, he cannot sin. He is absolute, eternal, holy perfection. We are not. That is why when 
Paul was evangelizing Felix in Acts 24, he spoke to him of righteousness, giving the gospel, righteousness, that God had a righteous standard, self-control. And at that point, he talked about how obviously Felix could not control himself to live according to God's righteousness. And then he talked to him about judgment. That's how you present the gospel. You start with righteousness. You expose sin in the category of the lack of self-control. And then you talk about judgment. And when the sinner knows the weight of his sin because he has no self-control and how far short he falls of the righteous standard of God, you have him hanging over hell. And at that point, you bring the gospel of grace and forgiveness. Self-control is an attribute of God. Again, it's a very rare word. Even in the New Testament, just a couple of places it's used. Second uh, Peter 1 says, As believers, add to your faith moral excellence, knowledge, add to your knowledge self-control. Self-control. Get a hold of yourself. Get a grip on yourself. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I beat my body into submission, lest in ministering to others I become a castaway. It's the power to be consistent. It's the power to be virtuous. It's the power over your corruption that still remains even in us. The example is Christ, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, pure, sinless. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, forever. We're commanded to this. Add to your faith. I already read it, Second Peter 1, self-control. Elders are to be self-controlled. Titus 1, mature Christian men who teach younger men, Titus 2, are to be self-controlled. Where's the power for this? The power comes from the Holy Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. So what does your life look like if you're walking by the Spirit? It is a life manifestly faithful, truthful, trustworthy. It is a life where meekness, humility, and gentleness are manifest and a life where self, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, self-will, and sin is under control, as well as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. They all come together. Verse 23 closes with this statement, against such things there is no law. Maybe that's... uh, Maybe there's a little sarcasm in that for the legalists. There's no law against such virtue. You that are so worried about law, there's no law against that. Furthermore, the law is not able to produce that kind of virtue. The law can't produce that kind of virtue. The law can't restrain the deeds of the flesh. Virtue can't be produced by the law. And certainly the Lord would never forbid these things. So there's no law against them, and there's no way a law could enable them. The only way these become reality is by walking by the Spirit. And the Spirit, God in us, produces these attributes through us. So we see here this Dramatic contrast, and this is how we are to shine as lights in the world in this dark, dark, polluted world. 
Those of us who are the true church, true believers, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, need to be manifest, visible by these graces. Final word. We have seen the command to walk. We've seen the conflict between the flesh and the Spirit. We've seen the contrast between the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. The final conclusion comes then in the final two verses. This is the conclusion. First, a summary of God's part. Great news. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus, that would be all true believers, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Is that good news? I don't want to hear, I tried, but I can't do it. This is who I am. I can't do it. You're going to have to accept me. This is who I am. If, if you're not a believer, that's right. But if you are a believer, that's not right. That is not who you are. That is who you were. Such were some of you. But you're not. If you belong to Christ Jesus, you have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That is a very strong statement of a past act. It's already happened, once for all action in the aorist tense. You were crucified with Christ. You died in Him. And with that death was the execution of the affections and the lusts and passions and longings that totally dominated your life. A death blow has been delivered to passion and desire. Yes, it's still present until our salvation is complete, but it's not sovereign. It's not in charge. It's not an excuse because your passions and desires have been crucified when the flesh was crucified. When did that happen? At your salvation Christ died for you on the cross, the application of that death came to you at your salvation. You are now a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things new have come. That's God's part. He's done His part. You can walk by the Spirit now. You can overcome the flesh. You can live a truly righteous life. You can. And you must. Verse 25. Since we live by the Spirit, since the Spirit is in us, let us also walk by the Spirit. God did His part. He killed the sovereignty of your flesh. Now you do your part and walk by the Spirit, consistent with His will and power as revealed in Scripture. I close with Colossians 1. Verse 10, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Joyously, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's a lot to unpack. Walk worthy of the Lord. You can, you must. Please Him in all respects. Bear fruit in every good work. Increase in the knowledge of God. 
and you will be strengthened with all heavenly power according to His glorious might, and you will attain steadfastness and endurance and joyously live a life of gratitude to God who brought you out of darkness into light. Walk, the final word, walk by the Spirit. The end of verse 25, different word for walk. Parapeteo is used in verse 16, just the word for walk. This is stoikeia. It's a military word. March, march, one thing after another, one thing after another. March in step with the Holy Spirit, and you will see this fruit in your life, and you will be a shining light in a dark, polluted world. Father, thank You for giving us the time this morning and opportunity and pouring into our minds and hearts this divine truth in this most important portion of Holy Scripture. Thank You for the lives that You've transformed here, for the miracles that are everywhere, the miracle of regeneration that has been wrought. We rejoice. We rejoice with overwhelming thanksgiving. We are to be marked by thankfulness, and certainly we understand why. We who deserve nothing have been given everything. Now may we walk in this world so that our testimony can be seen, so that men will see our lives and glorify You, our Father, in heaven. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website, gty.org. And for details about the Masters University where John serves as president, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file.
Jesus said to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the things you need will be added to you. The writer of Hebrews said to desire a heavenly city, for here on earth we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Paul wrote to the Galatians to hold to the promise of the Jerusalem from above. And he told the Colossians, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. When your hope is in Christ and his kingdom, nothing else will satisfy. Sin won't be as tempting. The world's attractions won't be as attractive. Earning the world's favor won't matter. You will desire to please your king and share the message of his kingdom so others might believe and be saved. This world will perish in judgment, but the followers of Jesus will inherit his kingdom. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal, when we understand the text. This is Wretched Radio with Talk Free. What is a critical race theory? It is the philosophy, the mm, social structure that is designed to tear down the current social structure and replace it with, voila, the proponents of critical race theory so that nobody's in charge anymore except for the people who will be in charge soon. This is Wretched Radio. To understand critical race theory is to understand why the social justice movement that we are currently seeing in the Gospel Coalition, Southern Baptist Convention, Nine Marks Ministries, Acts 29 Network, we're talking about millions and millions of people here, y'all, why, it, why it's so bad. Not the people. They're just following what they think is a good idea, but it's not. The idea of eradicating racism, pointing it out as a sin, dealing with sexism, of course. All on board. Nobody... Nobody's standing in a corner saying, we're not going to play that game. But how they're going about doing it is causing division, separation, splitting. Why? Because it's critical race theory at its core. Let me share with you what that is. This is from a book by Neil Shenvey. It was written in 1992, a long review of race, class, and gender. Back then, the terms white privilege, ableism, systemic racism, all found in that book in 1992. So these ideas are not new. These go back. Remember, postmodernism plays a big role in this. Foucault, Derrida, and the other guys that were involved, most of them dead, mercifully, that were promoting a deconstructionist view of everything. How to, how to, how to really read the Bible? Read between the lines. Literally. What's not there? That's what the author really meant. What sort of a hermeneutic is that? A horrible one. And yet the Gospel Coalition is teaching a class on it. It's called the Gospel Coalition Course, Dorita Foucault and the Bible. How to bring their thought into conversation with the Bible. The Bible exposes it as horrible, secularist, godless thinking that we reject. That's how we interact with deconstructionism and postmodernism. Richard Rorty, all these guys... We reject it. So 1992, these ideas were already fomenting. It emphasizes, and this is going to sound so familiar to you, and this is another fatal flaw in the social justice movement because it's critical race theory. It emphasizes experience over argument. 
experience, and that's, that's, look, I do not argue for a second that black people get pulled over indiscriminately. I get it. I totally do. I get it. But that's, that's an experience. That's not empirical data. Okay? Seeing, seeing one thing happen, perceiving it in a way that you think was unjust, that's an experience. And it, look, we want to hear it. And we want to sympathize. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having to sit with your teens? This is reality. Okay, this is reality. Now, um, this is not a condemnation of police at all. Another fatal flaw of this movement. They lionize bad people while they, while they criticize good folks. Uh, this is not a critique of the police at all. But what's the, what's the reason for that? That's what we need to figure out. Nevertheless, teenagers need to be taught by their parents, if you get pulled over, this is how you act, this is what you say, this is what you do. Otherwise, it could turn ugly. Now, would you like to have that conversation with your child and you say, well, I, as a white person, I do have that conversation to, to respect the police, I, I, and I agree with that. We have two, but this is different. This is different. And, and we don't have to argue about this, that, that bl- a black teenager driving down the road gets looked at differently by a police officer. There's no argument. There's just there's no argument. Again, dealing with why, how we fix that and correct that, that is where we need to be spending our time. Critical race theory, it, the critical race theory says take those experiences and argue from experience. And, and that's just not enough and that is one of the by the way law schools there are many a couple hundred law schools that teach critical race theory but many of them not all but many some at least reject it because it's it's not the way we argue it's not reason and logic it all has to do with experience and we hear that a lot don't we that's Matt, this is this is where matt chandler camps i know some black people who have been pulled over and that's terrible Therefore, tear down the structures, get rid of the systemic racism. Um, correct observation, wrong conclusion. Why? Because it's a part of critical race theory. Premise one of critical race theory, there are four. Human relationships should be fundamentally understood in terms of power dynamics, which differentiates groups into oppressors and the oppressed. Sound familiar? Did you hear all of those tweets that I read? That's why they smell funny to you, because it's critical race theory. We're defining ourselves, who's got the power and the privilege and who doesn't. Another fatal flaw of this movement, because privilege is something God is okay with. Some people have more, some people have less. Whether it's things or faculties, God is okay with that. Some people have different roles. Now, to call it privilege, be envious of it, is to be carnal. That, that's what Galatians 5, verse 28, lists about envying, factions, outbursts of anger. Those are carnal things. And a lot of that we're seeing is because human relationships are being defined in terms of power dynamics. Uh, that, that's critical race theory, sometimes called neo-Marxism. Uh, it's, it's not classical Marxism because it's not about economic division, bourgeoisie, proletariat, past, present, future, that stuff. This, this, we'll call it Gramscian Marxism, about him from Italy, another time, uh, Gramsci or Gramsci, another time. But this, this is a, a Marxism about social things, heterosexuals and homosexuals, males, females, white, non-white. This relationship, all of these relationships, 
viewed in terms of power dynamics and oppressors and the oppressed. That's why intersectionality foments. You see, there are people who are oppressing. Who's at the top of the heap? White European Christian males. They're at the, they're at the top of the privileged heap. And if you are a black, you're below them. If you're a lesbian, you're below them. If you're transgender, you're below them. If you're poor, you're below them. Now, if you happen to be a poor black lesbian woman, well, then you're really, really below them, and we need to listen to you more than anybody else. You go, well, what? That's called intersectionality, and it's part of critical race theory. As a white male, you ought to come to see that you are part of the oppressive group inherently in virtue of your gender and race exactly what we're hearing coming out of the Gospel Coalition, MLK 50, Southern Baptist Convention. Exactly it. But this, this is a book on critical race theory from 1992, not evangelical Christianity. There's only two categories of people, oppressor and the oppressed. That's it. Premise number two. Our identity as individuals is inseparable from our group identity. Ah, so why does a particular people group that shares something in common about their identity, vote for the same party every time. It's called identity politics. It's part of critical race theory. Our identity as individuals is inseparable from our group identity, especially our categorization as oppressor or oppressed with respect to a particular identity marker. Hence, identity politics. We, as a voting voting block, vote for this group of people or this camp because of our identity, not because of policies, not because of wisdom, not because of skills and capabilities, but because they're for me and my group. Critical race theory slash identity politics, premise number three. All oppressed groups find their fundamental unity in their common experience of oppression. That's what unifies these groups, and that is why you don't see feminists upset at at Muslims. They're fighting oppression, and they're compatriots, even though... Muslims throw gay people off of buildings. They're oppressed, all oppressed. And so it forms a political alliance with these minority groups to throw over the oppressor. Premise number four of critical race theory. The fundamental human project is liberation from all forms of oppression. Consequently, the fundamental virtue is standing in solidarity against the oppressor. Now, Let me take you back to the tweets that I shared before. Kyle J. Howard, this is where it's at. White evangelicalism, if it wants to become a true ally to black community, it must begin investing financial resources owed back to it because we've been the oppressors. That's Kyle J. Howard. Ed Stetzer, ever notice that people yelling just preach the gospel, don't worry about social justice, they didn't have ancestors who were enslaved? the oppressor, Ray Ortland. Moses renounced his social privilege, choosing to be mistreated with God's people. He didn't just decry his privilege, he crossed the line and left it behind, identifying with outsiders. That's what you're hearing. You are this from Daniel Aiken. Biblical complementarians believe they're called to servant leadership. They'll sacrificially love their sisters in Christ and empower them. J.D. Greer we need to tear down all hierarchy. What, what is that? It's critical race theory. This, 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 Russell Moore, we desperately need a resurgence of women's voices and leadership and women's empowerment 
It's time, said Jen Wilkin, as go our seminaries, so go our churches, to reevaluate existing power structures. That is why we reject this movement, not the people, but the movement, because it is based in unbiblical critical race theory ideas. Until tomorrow, go serve your king. Thank you very much for watching one segment. You can listen to three more, well, if you can stomach it, for free at wretched.org, iTunes, Android, whatever your listening device is. If you have a plate in your head, you can pick up the program from anywhere around the world thanks to the ongoing monthly support of our gospel partners. Should you be one of the people who has listened to the program for an extended period of time, meaning more than once, would you please consider becoming a gospel partner so we can continue to proclaim the good news of the gospel? Simply visit wretched.org. That was from Wretched's YouTube page, um, that's W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D, and then it's called To Understand Critical Race Theory is to Understand the Social Gospel Coalition. And what I'm going to do for you now is going to play the song, this is called Random Thoughts 3 by Shiloh, here on Truth Be Told Radio. Like deja vu, right? Hey, yo, I'm back, but nobody was asking where I've been. Cause Christ in the music is no longer the hot trend. Logic says, well, maybe I should just stop then. But I never got into this for a spot in the top ten. I do this for one reason. Jesus, the true king, son, to help God's elect obey Hebrews 3.1. And though the rap world is ever crowded, if heaven allows it, I'll keep writing for the 7,000. I know you out there. I still get the emails. Against the church of Christ, the gates of hell will never prevail. It's founded on the rock. And the gospel never stops So we dropping the topic Whether it's popular or not Sin is not just toxic And the clock is going to stop God is not to be boxed With the wrath of God is burning hot We were locked in sin's closet Our conflict was cosmic God plotted to stop and Hit the demonic with a shot I was copping narcotics Agnostic with a plot No optics for the knowledge Of the God who often not Jesus rocked me with the gospel And it tied me up in knots So I hopped in a rocket And met the prophet at the top Yo That's just another way of saying I met God in the scriptures But we just gonna let that breathe For a second, you know what I mean? The Bible says he was been forgiven much, loves much. We gonna talk about BC a little bit. My depravity was total, not small like pox. I was chained to sin, I couldn't take off the locks. I thought I was a player, a match with the flavor. Say I know what the time is, but I ain't read Isaiah. I would chuckle daily as I paid for disgrace. My eyes were always puffy like I got sprayed with mace. I would toot my horn at parties, and I would do bars. Got so intoxicated, I was ready to do Mars. Notorious for acting pretty silly in my city, Philly. Friends hear about it and be like, whoa. Did he really? Because I played dirty Bill Lambeer style Through great mercy, spirit-filled and dear child Went from so gritty to headed to a gold city In Christ I shine, the world's like no biggie Whatever time to sing, I'm putting faith on the song 112 displayed in John, the way to respond When his patience runs out, then it's time for the ride, man Microwave, wrath of God, fam That's why because of Christ I got mad joy All I'm saying is I used to be a bad boy <laughs> But nowadays, I'm regenerated, born again from above, fam. How else can I say that? Went from various vices to a kid that's married to Christ, using literary devices to spit is very precise. My conversion to the master was so dramatic. I just 
just wanted to be an ambassador or fanatic. The gospel was my tonic. With Christ, I couldn't lose. But to walk with God like Enoch, I knew I couldn't cruise. This walk is a beast, but nothing's greater than the cross. Saw the mark of the east and the raiders of the laws. While power records were choosing to carry G-Unit. I was on that revolutionary theme music. The brothers from the Lou held it down as well. But we noticed a big shift in 2012. Around the time Jackie asked me about Calvinism. Christian hip-hop found a different algorithm and crossed over without taking the crossover made us all sober years later is it all over trip asked me if i was still motivated i was quiet but i wanted to say no i hate it Cause brothers in your camp causing lots of confusion i love them as brothers in christ but not their conclusions they want to reach the world by all means keep pursuing it but tell me why they gotta diss the church while they doing it that's what i wanted to say but i ain't say it though but no more laying low i want them to play it slow and i ain't dissing them my prayers are the proof like boaz without ruth is unity without truth CHH is like gorillas in the mist With no brotherly love It's like Philly don't exist What's happening here? It's a different atmosphere Cats appear most concerned about a rap career Brothers overseas being slain in the sand While we're vain in our plan Taking fame and some fans And I ain't got time to philosophize Satan got a plot device I'm seeing lots of guys apostatize On top of all that Donald Trump's the president It's all good though Cause Jesus Trump's the president So more than ever I'm trying to rep the Lord who bled And we ain't never gonna stop working the Corby Red. I'm just trying to give a healthy demonstration of theocentric music for the selfie generation. See, the problem is sin, no riddle in it. Cause all sin got I in the middle of it. We're mad to praise and truly evil. We need to be born again without a Matt Damon movie sequel. In the gospel, God addresses our depravity. The lamb slain at Calvary, the depths of his agony. He rose from the grave with abundant grace. And when we come in faith, he'll bring us up from the sunken place. Our sins, decrepit depths, left the mess. No rest was left till Jesus put death to death. The beauty of the victory truly is a mystery. The cross of Jesus Christ is at the nucleus of history. Before the cross, they were saved on credit. After the cross, we've been saved on debit. Since our champion in the great war suffered, we gonna proclaim his death like the Lord suffer. So welcome to the Still Jesus Project. Yo, we just getting started and we got a lot left. Stone and broke it open wide. Whoa, oh, 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 oh. 
sovereign lord who can truly understand your depths and you this life you're the source of every man's breath your mysteries the sharpest of minds can't guess they stand perplexed can't fathom what you plan next in the garden we failed your commands test we transgress now our world is a grand mess lord you're perfect so why should you demand less man's best is only a sinking sand quest but through christ watch god's saving hand flex redeem the people north south east and west glorious robes in the promised land dress we stand blessed all because of the lamb's death so as we're lifting up our praise to you receive it lord the object of our affection whom we adore falling in our misery you daughter into history the pardon of iniquity startling the mystery the oceans the plains the mountains the rain the universe proclaims glory of your name and what am I that you called me to your side and took this heart of stone and broke it open wide Shining with Starly Mystery. You want to find out more about Shining? Um, see his record label, Lampmode.com, L A M P M O D E.com. Name is spelled S H A I N N L I N N E. And now here's another one by Shining called Immutable here on Tributary. <laughs> Writing this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions, billions years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean, but my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change. I was thinking 
just the other day How you reign supreme by far Not just because of what you do But simply because of who you are There's none like you in existence You are God and you need no assistance Even though we show you resistance You sent Jesus to close the distance That existed between God and man According to your sovereign plan We changed many times in one lifespan I've changed even since this song began Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us All that you do will certainly last You are the rock that we can trust Shows us back in eternity past As long ago as that was as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the same. All of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies Still you pursue relentlessly At times I wonder how this can be Surely it's because of the cross Where Jesus paid the full penalty And bore the burden of sin's great cost I'm saved by grace and faith in God I look to Christ and I trust He died So even though I'm being sanctified I can't be any more justified His work is finished that cannot change And with this knowledge I am free Forever this grace it will remain Because of what happened on Calvary As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change. You remain the same. Is belief in aliens religious? This is Ken Ham, an Aussie transplant with a passion for God's word and the gospel. A study last year found that those who claim they're not religious but want meaning in their lives show a greater belief in intelligent ETs. Now, no one is truly without a religion. Everyone has religious beliefs, including atheists. And everyone knows in their heart of hearts that God exists. Because of this, people yearn to find meaning in their lives. But for those who want to reject God, there's no ultimate meaning, purpose, or hope. So many look to aliens for meaning, to feel like they're part of something bigger and not alone. The true meaning, purpose, and hope, but that doesn't come from aliens. It comes from believing in Christ and His Word. Discover answers to the questions of our day and learn about the hope of the gospel at AnswersRadio.com and plan your visit to the Creation Museum at AnswersRadio.com. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. 
Jesus, was he wrong? This is Ken Ham, editor of the popular The Answers Book for Kids series. When Jesus was asked about marriage, he responded with, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now notice that Jesus said, from the beginning of creation, not millions of years after the beginning. 
You see, if you believe the universe is billions of years old, then we were created billions of years after the beginning. And that means Jesus was in error when he said we were created at the beginning. But Jesus is God, and the Bible tells us God doesn't lie. If Jesus lied about the age of the earth, how can we believe anything he said? Instead of trying to fit man's ideas into the Bible, we need to start with and believe God's word. The universe is young. Want to learn more about our young universe and what the Bible teaches about our origins? Visit AnswersRadio.com and sign up for daily insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com.
evolution like gravity? This is Ken Ham, the president of the ministry behind the popular Answers Bible curriculum. Is doubting evolution the same as doubting gravity? Well, here's a simple way to test this claim. Drop whatever's in your hands right now and see what happens. It fell to the ground, right? Now take a single-celled organism and turn it into a fish. Can't do it? Well, that's the difference. Gravity is observational science. We can directly test and observe it and repeat our experiments. But evolution supposedly happened in the past. It's not directly testable, observable, or repeatable. There's no truth to the idea that evolution and gravity have both been proven. They're two different kinds of science. One is observable, the other's not, and never will be. Subscribe to receive daily email insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com and plan your visit to the Ark Encounter south of Cincinnati when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
bacteria remain, well, bacteria. This is Ken Ham, and our Ark Encounter attraction is open in northern Kentucky. Scientist Richard Lensky has been growing the bacteria E. coli in the lab for nearly 30 years. Now, since the generation times are really short for bacteria, he's grown over 60,000 generations. And Lensky's work is often touted as evidence for evolution in action. And why? Because a certain gene that's normally switched off is now switched on. But that's not evolution. The information was already there. The lab conditions made it beneficial to switch that gene back on. What Lensky's experiments are really showing is that bacteria remain bacteria. After 60,000 generations, his E. coli haven't turned into anything else or gained any new information. Listen to this program again, view a transcript, or share it with others when you visit AnswersRadio.com. Get answers about creation versus evolution at AnswersRadio.com.
Mile High Orchestra, the, and that's the song, The Solid Rock. And now here another from Answer to This. Did man live with dinosaurs? This is Ken Ham, President of the Apologetics Ministry of Answers in Genesis. Evolutionists often mock creationists for believing man lived with dinosaurs. But did you know there's a long list of creatures that live today and are also found buried in the same layers as dinosaurs? The list of fossils includes rabbits, squirrels, possums, shrews, beavers, parrots, owls, penguins and flamingos. And also frogs, salamanders, box turtles, boa constrictors, iguanas, crocodiles, eels, sharks, crickets, cockroaches and more. This isn't surprising to biblical creationists. God created all living things over six days. So, of course, dinosaurs and many other creatures lived at the same time, and we find them buried together because of the global flood of Noah's day. Get answers to your questions about dinosaurs at AnswersRadio.com and plan your visit to our full-size Noah's Ark at Ark Encounter when you visit AnswersRadio.com. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine.
surface, and that's the, all I got for our show, so gotta go out with Yancy and friends. Until next time, bye for now.